Hello, listeners. Today, I am excited to share with you an interview I did with Jason Stanley. He is the author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. This interview was done via Zoom with Warwick's Books, a wonderful boutique bookstore and a sponsor of the Premise podcast. Warwick's is in La Jolla, California. And I had the opportunity to talk to Jason about his book and about fascism. Um, I hope you'll enjoy and take a listen and sorry about the crap audio oh yeah yeah it, it's, it is it's, via zoom it's the best i could do it's it's not the best <laughs> audio quality but it's definitely it's worth a listen worth a listen yeah all right let's do it roll it live we're live there we go. Hello, everybody. Okay, it's Julie with Warwick's, and we are coming to you live this evening with a virtual event between uh, Jason Stanley, the author of, um, give us your title of your book real quick. How Fascism Works. There we go. There, there we, we go. go. That's He's Jason's book. Job, Jason. <laughs> and we are here with Jennifer Thompson. And um, I'm going to give you a couple, give everybody a couple minutes to get um, on with us and to, you know, this will be recorded and it'll be on um, Warwick's Facebook page. So everybody can see it later if they don't get a chance to see it right now. Um, Warwick's is actually open for business right now. So we are in a, with limited number of people in the store. Um, but we can, so Warwick's is in La Jolla, California. And so you can come by and shop and pick up books. You can order Jason's book. We'll be putting Jason's book um, link onto our Facebook page. You can go directly there and order the book. It is released in paperback, I want to say two days ago. Is that correct, Jason? Yep. Two days ago it was released in paperback. So you can order it from us. We can ship it to you. You can come by and pick it up. Um, and so, or, you know, uh, curbside delivery too if you don't feel like coming into the store so we're doing yeah. all the social distancing thing so that's my little PSA I'm going to introduce you all to Jennifer Thompson and then Jennifer will introduce the program I'm going to drop off of the call or drop but I'll be in the background monitoring Facebook questions so anybody out there that would like to ask a question and I'll put that in the comments too go ahead and put some questions um, into the uh, comment field and we'll do that um, towards the end of the conversation about the 30 35 minute mark so Jennifer Thompson is a personal branding expert, digital marketing strategist, and host of the Premise podcast, which this will be on the Premise. Um, also, that people can listen to it there as well. She's an award-winning author and speaker who delivers strategy-rich content and actionable tools that educate and empower authors. She and her husband, Chad, co-founded Monkey See Media in 2004 and have been creating award-winning book cover designs and author websites ever since. They specialize in author services that integrate digital marketing strategies and engage readers all over the world. She is co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival and serves on the board of the San Diego Memoir Writers Association and is currently writing her own coming of age memoir. So I'm gonna drop off. You two have a great conversation and I'll pop back in when we have some um, questions. Thanks everybody. Thank you so much, Julie. I appreciate it. Jason, I am so excited to talk to you about this incredible incredibly important topic. First, I'd like to give our listeners and viewers an idea of who you are. So Jason Stanley is the Jacob Dorowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. 
He is the author of five books, including How Propaganda Works, winner of the Prose Award in Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers, and How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, called by historian Jan T. Gross a must-read for all of us who take seriously our responsibility as citizens. I could not agree more. We'll get more into that in our conversation. Stanley serves on the board of the Prison Policy Initiative and writes frequently about propaganda, free speech, mass incarceration, democracy, and authoritarianism for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Boston Review, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and Project Syndicate. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, um, I'd like to start with a basic definition of the word fascism. It seems to be that many people misuse this word. So what is fascism? Well, there's going to be a lot of different definitions. There's a long 70-year uh, uh, literature on it. And my, what my book does is it it's, it's an account of fascist rhetoric and politics. You can focus on uh, fascist regimes. Uh, what is a fascist regime? You can focus on whether or not someone is a fascist. My book is about fascist politics and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I want to move us a little bit off the question of, is this person a fascist? Is this government a fascist? A fascist? Uh, you could, because you, what we have to think about as citizens is when our society is moving towards accepting less democratic uh, norms. And, right. uh, and in particular, what concerns me are fascist norms in this book. Yeah. So what is fascist politics and ideology? The book is a 10-part definition of that. Um, very generally and not specifically enough, Fascism is uh, is an ideology that is based around ethno-nationalism, be it whiteness, uh, Hinduism, uh, Germanness, uh, <laughs> Jewishness, uh, any identity, sort of ethnic or possibly religious identity. And it places that identity above other identities and valorizes it. Um, it's nationalist. It identifies that identity with a nation and a place. And it mm -hmm. says people who, do, who don't have that identity don't belong in that place. It prizes loyalty over any other value, loyalty to that uh, ethno-national identity. And, uh, and it has, in the figure of one leader, uh, it, it, that leader represents himself as, an, as infallible, invulnerable, and the spokesperson for that identity. I am your voice. Yes. This is something Trump said during his early campaigning. I am your voice. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, uh, yeah, he certainly talks, talks uh, like this, but I think we, we've had these forces uh, in our society for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And Trump is, is a symptom of those mm -hmm. forces. You know, your book looks at single strategy techniques and you just mentioned, you know, it's a 10 part, answer to that question, what is fascism? And there are 10 chapters that break it down beautifully, um, all of which are incredibly enlightening. I just wanna say that your book reads really, as a professor of philosophy at Yale, I kind of expected it to be really dense and heavy and hard to get through, but it wasn't at all. You break things down in layman terms in a very typical way that I found myself not wanting to put the book down. And, and I personally think very, I mean, I believe this and not or any other book. I would say this is the only book. Everyone should read this book. It's eye-opening. 
in a way that makes you realize that we need to know what to look for and how critical it is to be aware and pay attention to what's happening around us. Because as, as much as we don't want to admit it, the past will repeat itself if we're not paying attention. So let's talk about chapter one, the mythic past. This is a technique that was used, I think, by the Trump campaign and to great effect. Can you talk about what this is, the mythic past, and why it works? So fascist politics always represents the, the past uh, as being this great, this great time where just the the special group, the, the the favored dominant group, the men were men, the favored dominant group ruled over everything. There weren't foreigners or minorities, or if they were, they weren't visible. Everyone got the respect that was deserved to them. You now now there's a particular version of the mythic past that you find in this kind of politics. It centers around the military and the greatness of the nation. And the idea was the nation was great and has been humbled. It has been humbled and brought to humiliation uh, by a weaker military, by being humiliated by internationalism and globalism. Uh, men have been humiliated by, uh, by women's rights. And so we need to return to that greatness. And that greatness involves putting that group that is at the center of fascist politics back in charge. Right, yeah. We're looking, you know, I, lo I love this title, The Mythic Past. We're convinced that it existed, but did it? I, I mean, it I remember. Never it, it never did. It never did. It never, it never did. That's the point of, that's the point. When you look at, uh, now I don't want to compare, there are many, one thing my book emphasizes is that, that fascism is much more familiar than you think. Uh, fascist mm -hmm. ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's. Uh, but uh, so when I make these Hitler comparisons, I'm not necessarily comparing um, Trump to Hitler because I don't think Trump is going to do a genocide or invade right. countries. Uh, but uh, but the politics and ideology are very similar. The things he says. Mm -hmm. So uh, so uh, you know H Hitler M Mussolini was very very explicit. Um, in, in this sort of ultra-nationalist viewpoint, the idea is you invent a past. Mussolini is very, as I talk about in chapter one, is explicit that the, the past is a myth. The mythic past is a myth, but it's something we're going to strive to remake the nation to return to this myth. Uh, yeah. You know, the Roman Empire, in his case, Erdogan in Turkey uh, talks about the, uh, the Ottoman Empire. Putin harkens back really to the Soviets, mm -hmm. uh, you're always hearkening back to this time when your country ruled the world. Right. Um, so so that, and, and of course, you know, uh, you erase the problematic aspects of the past. So mm -hmm. all these movements and ideologies say, we have to stop being, uh, being ashamed of our past. We have to be proud of our past. Let's, you know, uh, so the Civil War monuments debate, for example. Sure. Yeah, right. You know, it's interesting to me that you wrote this book in 2018, and a lot has happened since then. Um, in Brazil, the, a lot is playing out with President Bolsonaro. And can you speak to just what it must feel like to have written this book and then just watch all this stuff happening before us? Yeah, I wrote it in 2017, mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or all in 2017. It was published in September 2018. So it was fi finished in like February 2018, I guess. Um, so, uh, so yeah, 
the book is about fascist rhetoric and ideology. I think we're now seeing the effects of that ideology and rhetoric in policies. So at the very core of fascist ideology is this idea that outsiders are to be feared. They bring about humiliation and ruin. Uh, They're dirty. They're diseased, as we're seeing now. They're criminals. Uh, They're criminals. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're criminals. They're diseased. So this rhetoric was at the very center of uh, Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was an article in The New York Times that uh, that said that Stephen Miller, since 2017, has been using public health to close the borders, the the southern border since 2017. And they said in The New York Times, they said that somebody was asked, like, how often has he done it? Well, so many times you can't count. So obviously, the administration is using the coronavirus to shut the borders and to move their war on immigration from undocumented immigrants to legal immigration. Now they're trying to curtail legal immigration. Today, they announced shutting off uh, visas for thousands of Chinese students who are the lifeblood of many of our universities. It's really also a roundabout way to attack universities. But the idea, so so there's a relentless attack on immigration. Um, If you remember in 2017, when the travel, when they hurried through the the Muslim travel ban, we rushed to the airports. Uh, everyone rallied and said, see, the Trump administration is not going to do it. Well, they just added, added Venezuela and North Korea, got it through a new Supreme Court with a conservative majority. And now not only do we have the Muslim travel ban that people were patting themselves on the back for having stopped, we've added six countries, four in Africa that, you know, N- Nigeria, Tanzania, mm-hmm that Mm -hmm. have no record. Tanzania has no record of violence or terror. It's not it's not a, uh, you know, but these are countries with a lot of non-white people. And so uh, so we're returning when when the Trump administration said to said they were going to make America great again. A a fair question and question people asked at the time was, when was America great? What was the thing? And a lot of question. Yeah. 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 A lot of people thought the 1950s. I think what we're seeing, it's the 1920s. The mm-hmm. 1920s was the time when the United States was closest to fascism. Uh, Charles Lindbergh in the 30s uh, emerged as the Nazi hope for, uh, for an American Hitler, the National Socialist thought of Lindbergh as uh, an American Hitler. The, the plot against America, the HBO series, has been showing us that history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 20s and 30s, and, the, and 1924 was the 1924 Immigration Act, which this administration has repeatedly referenced and said we should return to. And the Mm -hmm. 1924 Immigration Act, let's remember, permanently excluded Asians from ever becoming American citizens. So what we have now is we have this return to the uh, the yellow panic, the the Chinese flu. uh, the 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 anti-Chinese rhetoric that we're experiencing is a return to the teens and the twenties, and that was the time when the United States was experimenting with eugenics and had health requirements on immigrants. They only wanted healthy immigrants from what you know what Trump in that famous those famous remarks were not from shithole countries, but places right. like Norway. Right. So, <laughs> and and in Mein Kampf, as I discuss in the book. Hitler references the United States as the closest country to 
achieving the ideal that he wants for Germany. During, you know, you mentioned this just a little bit ago, but during this COVID-19, have you seen an increase in fascism tendencies, almost at taking advantage of the chaos that's happening? Yeah, the, the administration has moved ahead with its war on immigration. They want to turn us, they want to shut the borders to legal immigration. They mm -hmm. want to cut off students coming to our country to study. They mm -hmm. want a, an isolated country. Uh, and, you know, they want to keep America. Uh, there's the great replacement theory, which I'm convinced is at the heart of what's going on. This idea that we need to prevent America from becoming majority minority. Right. Um, so uh, that is a very powerful political strategy to use. Mm -hmm. um, as my colleague Jennifer Richardson has shown, if you prime Americans with telling them that uh, that uh, in 2042, the US will become majority minority, they become more right wing on a whole host of issues, including defense spending, and they, be, and they start doubting climate change. <laughs> Inexplicably, <laughs> so, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It shows that we think in this partisan way where we all these things come, where there's like a mindset, oh no, you know, we might become majority minority. Let me go over to this set of issues. Right. Um, and of course, given that it's oil companies paying for a lot of this politics, they're happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, right, exactly. You're a child of refugees of World War II Europe. I imagine this has shaped your drive to understand how fascism divides people and knowing how to identify the patterns that repeat themselves if we, A, do not know what to look for or be, or we're not paying attention. Can you speak to the time in your life, if there is a specific moment when you realize that this would be your calling? Uh, I think it was, uh, well, throughout, as an American, I lived through the 1990s when I witnessed crime, violent crime had been dropping since 1991. And throughout the 1990s, thanks to Clinton, both parties started demagoguing on, on race and crime. And so throughout the, if you look at the national statistics, in 1991, violent crime starts dropping. In 1993, it starts really dropping. But by 95, 96, 98, politicians are pushing for life sentences for juveniles. They're pushing these harsh, they're calling uh, young black men thugs, uh, gang members. Uh, so when my mother was a court stenographer in Manhattan Criminal Court, Mm. And uh, and she what she witnessed through the 80s and 90s, you know, she would always say, uh, you know, they're targeting black people in this country. She would say harsher things. She was eight years old when she came to the United States. She grew up, was born and raised, born in 1940 and spent the first five years of her life in a Siberian labor camp, was repatriated back to Warsaw and lived until she was eight there in a series of orphanages. There was a lot of violence against returning Jews. And she saw in what was happening to Black America uh, what she experienced as a young Jewish girl in Poland. Mm. Uh, and James Baldwin has this incredible piece in the New York Times in the 1960s called Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. And he says, you think, speaking to Jewish Americans, that you're closer to us because of our shared history of oppression. But our shared history of oppression is why we resent you more, because we know that you feel lucky not to be us. Oh wow! And my mother was in the criminal justice system, and my and was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, you know that spoke to her. She, I mean, she knew not that spoke to her. She knew that that's that was her ethos. She's like, they're always going to kill someone, not us here. Uh, mm. And so, so 
living through the 1990s, being apolitical, uh, you know, I'm on the board of the Prison Policy Initiative, 100% of the profits of my previous book go to them. Uh, a lot of my advocacy concerns racial, I mean, 10%, almost 10% of the world's prison population comes from the 38 million black Americans, and there's 7 billion people on earth. So 10%. I think the only other time that's happened has been the Holocaust, when mm. one tiny group, the Uyghur Muslim situation in China might be worse than that. But so realizing that people can shut off concern, can close their eyes, cannot follow things, can just be like, okay, you know, like I did, I was not focused on mass what was happening, even though I knew in New York City it was less dangerous. I mm -hmm. knew that that there, you know that it wasn't the '80s anymore. Why were people still, you know, go you know doing all this you know these incredible sentences for right. uh, for uh, that put us um, so so I think that that sense that I lived through something without noticing it. Um, made me wary. And then my mm -hmm. first piece ever in the New York Times in 2012 or 2011 or 2012 called The Ways of Silencing was on birtherism. Because when birtherism came, I recognized the patterns and structures I knew from history and from my 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 family. There's a structure to conspiracy theories. You yeah. say the newspapers are in on the conspiracy. And you can tell because the newspapers never mentioned the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And then if the newspapers mention the conspiracy, then they give the conspiracy credence it shouldn't have. Yeah. And if they don't mention the conspiracy, it shows they're in on the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And that was what Hitler said about the media. He said the media is owned by the Jews and the communists. And you know that because the media doesn't tell you that they're owned by the Jews and the communists. Right. So... So I noticed that conspiracy theory thinking was taking over uh, in the United States. Birtherism was a salient example. So, uh, you know, uh, Trump has exemplified many of these trends. He was the leading figure on birtherism in the United States, uh, and he was deeply involved in the Central Park Five jogger case. Uh, mm -hmm. So he's been there rhetorically, and he's no slouch at exploiting these strategies. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you know, I, I want to talk about law and order a little bit more, too, because, in you know, chapter seven is dedicated to law and order. In America, we're really big in policing and enforcement as a means to make people feel safe. And, you know, this is whole driven by fear. And, you know, you really point this out in, in all of your 10 points in your book. But people think they're helping society, keeping the peace. But we're actually this is resulting in endless incarceration and death, seemingly by design. And you just mentioned you serve on the, uh, the board of the Prison Policy Initiative. Can you speak more to this of how we're as a society, we're seeing fear as a means to imprison ourselves? This is this endless incarceration. So fear, Plato back in book eight of the Republic says democracy will never work because a demagogue will come and he'll create fear and then say, present himself as the protector of the people from the fear that he has created. Right. So again and again, you create this fear. Uh, the fear is directed against the communists and it's directed against hated minority groups in fascist mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. Those two groups. And now they've you've changed it. So it's cultural communism, feminism, 
um, feminism was always, I mean, Hitler said that Jews invented feminism. So that was always, but the, you, you, uh, you, which I'll take credit for. Hey, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so the, um, the Jewish women, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, so the incarceration. So that showed that our society was deeply vulnerable for what was to come. Mm. Trump was playing on a whole set of moves that were familiar to everybody. He just did it with immigrants. He did with immigrants what was being done to young black men. Um, he just broadened it. Uh, they're, you know, they're thugs, gang members, rapists and criminals. <laughs> and so it's just the playbook. And it's exactly what they did with young black men in the 1990s. Um, and, uh, and to represent them as animals, as subhuman, as super predators. That's what he's doing with immigrants. And uh, so it was a playbook that was very successful. You've, you tie the economy to it. So many, I come from upstate New York, uh, poor rural, uh, I come from Syracuse, but it's surrounded by largely white rural areas. And, and there are large prisons in upstate New York that, and, and they serve as a bit, as a, like a, a, jobs fa- a, a jobs program for poor rural whites. So you, you connect your economy to this yeah. massive incarceration system. Now we have large detention camps uh, springing up that are also, you know, have huge amounts of government funding. Uh, and hire people. And so you devote lots of your economy to incarceration and then make it like, uh, and then it becomes this, this engine for jobs. And once you do that, once you tie the economics into this system, like oil, it's like oil. It would be great if we could just leap to renewable energies, but our economy is caught up in oil. And yeah. since our economy is caught up in oil and all these billionaires who are who are oil executives? Their money is in oil. They're going to not let us shift to renewable energy because that's the, you know that's the job structure they've created, and that's their profits. Now we have all these profits in mass incarceration, uh, and then we have an economy, a, a political economy, a political uh, soci- social life based on fear, uh, yeah. running for office by raising panic and fear about you know, rapists, criminals, gang members is something that American politicians on both sides of the aisle, ever since Clinton made it part of the Democratic Party, it's been something that, you know, everyone does. And of course, you're just going to move that. You're going to say, okay, who who are the criminals and rapists and gang members now? Yeah, um, it's a moving target, isn't it? A moving target. The most important little message about fascism I can relate to people is Marvin Niem- is is Martin Niemöller's poem first they came for first they came for the communists and I was not a communist so I did not say anything yeah next they came for the trade unionists labor unions members then I came uh, and I did not say anything because I was not a trade unionist then they came for the Jews and I did not say anything because I was not Jewish finally they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me so we learned two things from this. Number one, we learned the targets of fascism, uh, communists, which everything, everybody's supposed to be a communist. Everyone who's not on your, your side is a communist. The liberals are communists. The, you know, uh, everything's a mass for communists. Uh, secondly, labor unions are the enemy. And finally, minorities. Right. And the second thing we learned from this is don't let it start. <laughs> 
Well, absolutely. And I think the way that you break out some of the facts and, you know, the examples of what is happening, what it has been happening, it's startling. It's subtle. It's a subtle thing that is happening, but, but it's very clear when you point it out. And I think that's why this book is so important and why everyone needs to read this book. Um, I want to change the subject. There's a couple more things. I know we're going to run out of time here pretty soon. And there's a couple things that I have questions about. Um, I'm curious about your take on the direction of the DOJ, um, the Department of Justice, and, and how they're choosing to prosecute some and not others. They seem to have a preference, if not an agenda. I'm curious what your take is on this. Okay, so a very the literature on fascism, from Arendt's origins of totalitarianism to the Frankfurt School, focuses on one analogy. One analogy is very salient, and that's between fascist, fascist organizations and mob organizations, between the fascist leader and a mob boss. That's mm -hmm. very common analogy. They say, Arendt says, um, fascism and power, fa fascist organizations look like mob organizations. The fascist leader uh, transforms institutions into, you know, his bodies, his loyalists who go after the enemy. And the whole thing is a bunch of loyalists and cronies and family members. It looks like a mob organization. That's what we're seeing with all of our government organizations, including the Justice Department. We're just seeing Arendt's description start, because, and, and competence is the enemy because competent officials would be dangerous for you. So you want loyalty above everything. You wanna place loyalists there. Mm -hmm. and, and so what's happening specifically with the DOJ is they're trying to reverse engineer QAnon, that conspiracy theory. They're trying to make it come true by, you can't make it come true, but they're trying to cherry pick the past. Mm -hmm. So it gives it gives this absolutely untethered from reality fantasy some kind of, of basis. Mm -hmm. uh, they're cherry picking elements of the past to uh, to uh, to make it seem that Trump's great, you know, conspiracy theory, off the wall conspiracy theory has some evidence for it going into the 2020 election. And yeah. so that's what's going to happen more and more. We see fascism makes its own reality. Uh, so we see the Trump administration has removed lots of data, ordered the removal of data about climate change. Mm -hmm. It's It erases things to make its own fantasies seem correct. And yeah. And what we find in, from the past, there's a great book by Federico Finkelstein called, um, called A Brief History of Fascist Lies. And he begins it with, because lying is very crucial to this politics. The kind of out there, extreme, repeated lying is very yeah. crucial. So, yeah, just shocking, right? Shocking. <laughs> that's what's key. And that's what's, you just, you get people, you destroy the truth. And mm -hmm. so people are just like, it's just my side versus their side. I mean, right, the right. Not, there's no such thing. It's just my my fantasy versus their fantasy. And so um, so Finkelstein talks about Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, who had faked a, 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 an assassination attempt on himself. Mm -hmm. And everybody, know, and it's well-documented history, planned it for three months. But in his diary, he writes as if, it really was an assassination attempt, even though his diary was just meant for him. So I have his diary over here. Um, oh, yeah. 
His right. actual diary. <laughs> well, not the, uh, not, I mean. <laughs> the pre- I got it. The published diary. But, uh, but uh, in his diary, he writes as if it actually happened to him. So it's almost like these. Like he's forcing leaders. himself to believe it. Yeah. So when people are like, does, does Trump really believe the lies? Yes, well, it's does. like the mindset is to, there's no reality and mm-hmm. your wish, because mm-hmm. if you're, if, if it's all about power and will, that's the core mm-hmm. of fascism. So your will, you make your own reality. And then your supporters are like, yeah, yes. we like that. That's mm-hmm. cool. We don't care about the lying. He's more powerful than reality. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's, I want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about sports and how that's going to affect this coming November. But before that, I want to talk about Twitter. And so Twitter did a fact check on, on President Trump and President Trump is back. He's, he's responding with an executive order. Can, can you talk a little bit about this and how dangerous mm-hmm. this is? Uh, the folk, we should be very concerned uh, and this, I should, this returns me to your earlier point about Jair Bolsonaro. We need to be very concerned about the free press worldwide in the United Amen States. Worldwide. Yeah. Um, Trump's by the United States has always been the country that at least rhetorically has stood behind the free press worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, often we've been hypocritical, of course, because we're an empire. And so you know, uh, we have supported dictators uh, throughout the decades. Uh, but uh, but when the United States doesn't even provide rhetorical support for, for the free press, when the U.S. president is denouncing the press, uh, just like in every speech the Nazis did, die Lugenpresse, to write out of National Socialist rhetoric, the lying press, uh, when he's mm-hmm. doing that, uh, he is setting an agenda. Uh, you have people hating journalists and hating the media. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of thing, that's what you see in Brazil, where journalists have to, uh, like Patricia Campos Mello, get harassed on the street. And, uh, and so it's, it, get, it makes the, the, the life of a journalist that much harder. And that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we abstract from the wars between, I mean, these big tech companies, they're not our friends. Um, so... Uh, so, I mean, they enabled this. So, yeah. uh, so, uh, but, you know, the thing we need to think about, I mean, one, th- one of the many things, the, one of the bewildering things about this time is we need, we have a lot of things we need to think about at the same time. It is you know, bewildering. Uh, That's such a great word. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, Hannah Rent calls this the perpetual motion mania machine mm-hmm. of, of totalitarianism. It addicts you to it. It's so dramatic. Something's always happening. Some drama is always happening. It's such a, they're all drama queens. It's some hysteria is always happening. You get addicted to that perpetual motion mania. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, he is destroying, he's making it dangerous, miserable, and hard to be a journalist. And authoritarians all across the world are paying attention. And the, uh, the, the atmosphere for journalists has has not been worse in many decades. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I mean, I'm a journalist myself. So, I mean, I, I think that is the number one thing that has scared me the most is how many people say, well, I can't trust anything out there. It's all lies. 
I'm like, well, actually, that's not true. So, you know, once you stop believing in the free press, it's really just pandemonium. And we're seeing so much of that. And that, of course, makes it easier for the lies to be propagated. But, but let's talk about sports. So I, I have a prediction that football in particular is going to pay, play a really big role in maybe a culture battle or, you know, I don't want to say war in the November elections and how people want their sports and the idea of keeping our players safe, keeping people safe during COVID-19. Um, do you have any predictions in, in, in what you see in, in, in fascism tech techniques happening and utilizing the idea that, you know, we're not free. We're not allowed to do the things we want to do like sports, for example. Mm. Uh, freedom is an interesting uh, no, notion that's been, I did an interview earlier today or an interesting uh, propaganda term, term that can be used for propaganda. Mm -hmm. I did an interview earlier today in tie with the, with the Spanish newspaper entirely about how the far right worldwide is weaponizing the language of the last, like liberty and freedom and victimhood. You mm -hmm. know, who's, the, I mean, who's the biggest baby of them all? Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, who's the biggest victim and victimized more than anyone since Jesus Christ, apparently? Donald Trump. Who are right. the biggest victims? His supporters. Uh, you know, so, uh, so, which is not to say they aren't. Another victims. chapter in your book, I might add. <laughs> is victim, right. Yeah, the yeah. dominant group. And then this, the, the liberty talk, where liberty gets used in this weird way, where liberty, uh, you know, uh, mask requirements, I mean, we're, we're uh, it's detached to this idea that's core to fascism of social Darwinism and yeah. struggle. Only the strong survive. Uh, society should be set up so that the weak die and the strong live, and that's liberty. And that is fascist liberty, social Darwinism. That's why Hitler said, you know, uh, some people should be slaves. That's why Slavs should be slaves to us because we're the stronger race. So that is social Darwinism is fascist liberty. <laughs> and fa so the idea is the strong survive, the weak die, and that's liberty. So that's not liberty. Yeah. But that's <laughs> not liberty. So the idea that like I'm not allowed to do something that should be my very core right, you know, like people feel like their Second Amendment rights have been challenged during COVID. They're being forced to stay at home, and you know, all these. It's been politicized in such a way that I find heartbreaking. You know, as well, a, you have to. Everything's politicized under fascism. Reality is politicized under yeah. fascism. Yeah. Everything is us versus them. Mm -hmm. And so you turn everything into a culture war and then people will willingly die for their side and they'll willingly die as long as someone else, usually some in the United States, someone black, someone Latino, uh, uh, suffers more. So now this has been a highly disproportionate res response, response to uh a lot of essential workers are African American and Hispanic in the meat packing plants, in the meat in the in the um, in in the factory farms, uh, and uh, and you know I mean that's entirely cultural. The pork plants must remain open because mm -hmm. you know meat is cultural, right? Uh, right, so, right, right. Uh, so uh, so there's this idea that so I think what's happened is that. Um, the enemies of fascist politics, the urban areas, the people in the cities, uh, uh, non-whites, 
the disease has been associated with them. Mm -hmm. And then whites, many white Americans are like, well, it's not about us. It's just about people in the cities. And, and so, uh, so, so why should that curtail our freedom? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's always been the American tragedy, this idea that, you know, back to Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July, when he says, mm -hmm. really, you want me to talk about liberty? <laughs> what is yeah, that? it's about an attack on our personal freedoms. And once people start feeling like their personal freedoms are being removed, that's when they start to get excited. Well, I don't think it is an attack on their personal freedoms. I think you're giving too much to the ideology. No, I think people think that. I don't think people it is. Think that. People think that. But they people also, believe it. People believe it, um, but they also feel invulnerable, those people. Mm. Um, I think that, I think you, you're not what's going on is they've been because they're the chosen ethnic group part of that is well they're stronger they're tougher they're not going to suffer from this it's just other people will suffer from it hmm. uh, and even if people in their community are suffer it, it, that attitude will change if it if covid starts to ravage rural areas yeah um, we'll see but i think it's not just person it's that personal freedom and the feeling that they are invulnerable and it's really other people who are threatened. Hmm. Well, I think we're coming toward the end of our time. So do you have any final comments, things that you would like to say? Well, before um, we get to that, maybe yeah. I'm yeah. jumping back in. Let's do some, let's do some um, audience questions and then we'll get to final thoughts after that. How about that? Okay. Okay. Sound good. Um, okay. So Jonathan has a question here. Um, and it's a long one, so bear with me. What strikes me about fascism is the political and bureaucratic infrastructure that is required to support visionary leader. What worries me most about the Trump administration is not so much Trump as it is the number of people who appear to have compromised their principles for what they seek to gain. Do you see fascism as essentially requiring a consciously strong emotional focus on a few principles combined with a substantial cognitive dissonance? Uh, no, I don't see it that way. I think that Jonathan has accurately identified what's going on. Um, but in moments, uh, so every society, democratic society needs social conservatives. You need social conservatives. You need libertarians. Some problems of free market solutions, other problems do not. You need social conservatives. You need socialists. You need, uh, you, you need left, you need, but what you don't need is fascism. But what happens when fasc with fascism is that the legitimate democratic positions like social conservatism, libertarianism, uh, those leg perfectly legitimate positions, business elites, they unify together and some leader comes and says to them, I'll protect your interests from these leftists who want to threaten them and I'll be the tough guy, I'll smash them. And so people who aren't themselves fascists, like perfectly decent social conservatives, um, uh, will say, okay, well, you know, I think this guy's a thug, but he's going to get my agenda done. So that's what happens in these times. That's what happened in Germany. You get groups that aren't fascist saying, okay, we need a tough guy to come and he's going to shove through an anti-abortion law. Uh, we need a tough guy to come. He's going to cut taxes, you know, uh, give give 
wealthy real estate investors, $135 billion retroactive tax cut as just passed. And then you need a willing party that is in Hannah Arendt's terms, willing to place party over parties. And what Hannah Arendt means is you need a political party that places loyalty to to, to the party over loyalty to a multi-party democracy. And we have all those ingredients here. We have a hated, we have hated minority groups, xenophobia. We've got a leader promising to push through a religious conservative agenda uh, and huge tax cuts for business concerns and a party that only cares about loyalty to the party. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so the, and then our last question that we're gonna take from the comments is from Tony. Um, is India the closest example we have to a modern fascist state? Um, so India is India is still a democracy as a country. Everyone, so they still have wide voting. It's just that they're really trying to move the. What you always want to look at are citizenship laws. Once citizenship laws start to change, so the definition of a citizen it starts becoming ethnic or religious in nature. Uh, uh, you have a cons- you're no long you no longer have liberal citizenship laws, which uh, so so uh, India is changing its civ- citizenship laws. They're trying to uh, and that's why we have to worry about the United States, where the where they're going after legal Im- they're go- have an office of denaturalization now. So citizenship is really the focus, right? That's mm-hmm. what Mein Kampf is all about. We need citizenship based on ju- being an Aryan. So India is doing that. They're they're with a combination of the NRC and Sikh Citizenship Amendment Act. They're changing the definition of citizen to privilege Hindus and to re- remove citizenship from potentially from tens of millions of Muslim residents who don't have documents, although they've been born there and as of their great grandparents. So that's what's happening in India right now. And uh, Hindu ethnic nationalist agenda is being pushed like um, it makes the United States look uh, early on in that process. Well, um, fascinating conversation tonight. I mean, we could go on and on and on with you, Jason. Um, Do you have, as Jennifer asked earlier, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share out with our viewers on the book, on your last few comments about what you want people to take away? Well, I I think that... One thing we've learned in the last few years is that uh, Trump, is, I mean, one thing we, we should have, we should understand is that something in our society made us turn against each other, made us be fearful and angry. Yes, it was failure of the elites, uh, you know, the banking crisis and, and the, there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of insider dealing. Um, but, uh, but that, uh, the, the economy the the future is fearful and these are these are dangerous moments and we have these long standing aspects of our society racism misogyny uh uh inequality economic inequality that can make that can be weaponized against us uh and uh and used uh to rob us blind mm. <laughs> and well and that is what is happening now it benefits nobody <laughs> and i think that uh, conservatives, liberals. This is not conservative politics. This is not liberal politics. This is this is making money for people, mm-hmm. and uh, and so 
you know, if we see it in that way and we see ourselves as being tricked, uh, then maybe we can unify and not be at each other's uh, at each other's throats over minor disagreements. Yeah. Perfect. And that is such an important concept to this whole thing is somehow, well, how do we get back to this middle ground of somewhere in that middle ground? Mm-hmm. Um, Jason, your voice is fantastic. Are there um, places where can you share with anybody? Are you on any kind of social media where people can follow you? Oh, on what Twitter, you- uh, okay. Jason Intrator, J-A-S-O-N-I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R at well, yeah, at Jason and Trotter, J-A-S-O-N-I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. I'll try and find that and I will put that link on the comments in this so that people can make sure that they follow you on that because that is, and if you will hold up your book one more time. Yep. um, Again, you can, the link is there. We can, you guys can um, uh, order that directly from us right now. It's in paperback as of two days ago. Jennifer, um, the premise, give us where we can um, find you on the premise. All right. Anywhere you get your podcasts and you can follow us on Twitter at the premise pod um, at the premise pod. Yeah. So, and also check out the San Diego writers festival.com where you can also listen to the premise. Thank you so much. Both of you. What a great conversation, Jason. I love your book. I hope people buy it. Um, It's a, it's a it's a fast read, actually, enlightening, and um, I'm going to read it again. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for those wonderful questions. Yeah, thank you. This thank was you. It was a great night. I'm going to take us travel again. Hopefully, we can. Uh, <laughs> yes, we can, we can have a conversation in person and with all of our customers at Warworks. We will look forward to that day. Hopefully, one day soon. Absolutely. So I'm going to pull us off of Facebook Live. So thanks, everybody. Everybody, have a good Bye. evening. Bye. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Premise. You can visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, be safe and take good care of yourself. Thanks for listening. And check out our sponsors, the San Diego Writers Festival, as well as Warwick's Books in La Jolla. Do we have any other sponsors? I don't know. Is San Diego Memoir Association a sponsor? They are now. Boom. There you go. Welcome to the club, San Diego (laughs) Memoirs Association. Thanks for listening. Bye.